this week on Geeksplained, with WandaVision premiering on Disney Plus this Friday. We're taking a special look at the comic that inspired the show. So join us for our latest Geeksplained Spotlight. Behold the visions. A perfectly normal family in a perfectly normal neighborhood. At the beginning of our story, the vision, his wife Virginia, and their children Vin and Viv will attempt to live a normal life. By the end of our story, the bodies will not stay buried, the truth will not remain hidden, and the vision will never be the same. Welcome back to Geeksplained. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is the latest Geeksplained Spotlight, our monthly series where basically I take a specific comic run, a graphic novel, a series, a single issue sometimes, and really just get down into the nitty gritty and talk about why I love it so much. And this one's a little bit special, if you couldn't tell from that intro, because... This is Tom King and Gabriel Walta's The Vision. I have been wanting to talk about this for so long, and I'm very excited to talk about it in this week's episode. Not just because it is continuing on what I'm calling my Tom King series. You can go back in the archives. I've done episodes on Mr. Miracle, on Heroes in Crisis, and even though, you know, those stories aren't, I would say, on the same level of quality, personally... Uh, those two are some of my favorite episodes that I've ever done for this podcast, and I'm really excited as well because this week, if you were unaware, uh, WandaVision is coming to Disney Plus uh, this Friday as of this recording, and this is one of the, if not the main uh, source of reference, of inspiration that the show is taking from to tell its story. So if you are excited to watch WandaVision, this is going to be the comic to read. Uh, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't checked out the book, I would absolutely recommend it. But that is the main course of this week's episode. We also have our final Wildcard Weekly review before we dive into WandaVision for our weekly review series kicking off next week. And of course, this week's Comics Countdown is almost is also coming your way with a lot of Future State books. But before we get into all of that, let's check in with this week's news. <laughs> All right, guys and dolls, let's talk some news. We have our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. And after the rid 
ridiculous amount of news that we had last week. I kind of thought that it was going to be a quiet week, but apparently not so. We have news in all four categories this week, and we're going to kick things off with probably the most recent news, which was in miscellaneous news, Bethesda. You know, Bethesda, the game company that has produced games such as Fallout 76. Um, they announced this week that they are in the process of developing an Indiana Jones game. Now, this is important for a couple things. First, for a couple reasons. First off, Indiana Jones is a huge IP that has never really gotten a genre-defining video game. B, Bethesda is kind of Xbox uh, exclusive right now, which means that while PlayStation has always and will continue to always hold on to the Uncharted franchise, Xbox now has its own Uncharted franchise, and it's literally Indiana Jones. So I can't wait to see how this shakes out again with Bethesda's track record. It's it it's giving me pause, as I'm sure it is giving a lot of people, but I will continue to be cautiously optimistic about their uh, their video game endeavors. In comics news, we have a new limited series that is coming from Marvel. It's called The Mighty Valkyries, and it's going to be written by Jason Aaron and Torun Gronbeck, with art by Mattia de Iulis. I'm so sorry if I mispronounced that, but I am pretty hyped about this. This didn't get a whole lot of fanfare, but I am really interested in what this is presenting. This is going to be, of course, post-King in Black, so we know that there's been some stuff. During the King in Black event, uh, they are doing a... uh, I believe it's called Return of the Valkyries. Either it's a one-shot or just a couple issues, but... More Valkyries are returning, and this is post-War uh, of the Realms, where all the Valkyries got wiped out, and Jane Foster became the sole Valkyrie, so we're getting at least one more Valkyrie. Uh, the synopsis for this reads as thus. After their cataclysmic showdown with Null in King and Black Return of the Valkyries, Asgard's greatest warriors will embark on another glorious quest in a brand new series. Launching in April, the mighty Valkyries will be crafted by the returning all star creative team of writers Jason Aaron and Torun Gronbeck and artist Mattia de Iulis. Jane Foster believed she was the only Valkyrie left, but the fight against Null, the King in Black, proved her wrong. Now, the Valkyries must redefine their roles in a changing world, and Asgard's not going to make it easy. When Loki comes to Jane with rumors of a beast stalking the souls of Midgard, she leaps into action along with the mysterious new Valkyrie, who just made her highly anticipated debut in King in the King and Black Return of the Valkyries number one. But does Jane's new ally have other priorities? Years ago, this ancient warrior made a promise to a woman she loved, and now it's time for her to follow through. Now, this is, I'm sure you've seen in the uh, pressers for Return of the Valkyries, uh, this is most more likely than not going to be the Tessa Thompson-esque Valkyrie that we've seen. Um, I think it's great that they're bringing her version of Valkyrie into the comics because she was one of the most dynamic characters from Thor Ragnarok and putting her together with Jane Foster featuring the two of them kind of on a, uh, a beast hunt 
for something that is stalking the souls of Midgard and teaming them up with Loki, I think it's a it's a recipe for an amazing story. So I'm really looking forward to this coming out in April. Keep your eyes peeled. As we move on into film news, we've got three pieces of film news here. Um, first off, from DC Comics, uh, apparently Ray Fisher, who played Cyborg in... Uh, the Justice League film has publicly stated that he will no longer be working on any DC projects as long as they are affiliated with Walter Hamada, who is currently running the show at DC Comics and Warner Brothers Films. And since he just signed a big fat extension on his contract, I don't think we're going to be getting any Ray Fisher for a while. I understand where he's coming from, his... um, his perspective on things, the stories that he's told are pretty horrific, uh, especially like as an actor hearing some of the stuff or the rumors and innuendo that has gone on. But um, I I don't know how to feel about this. Um, I do think that Ray Fisher was one of the best parts of the original Justice League, but he hasn't really had a film since then. This was his feature film debut, and unless I missed something, he hasn't really been in anything since. So I don't know how this shakes out with uh, the Snyder Cut, how that works since he's been so uh, heavily involved in making sure that that gets off the ground, and that is obviously a Warner Brothers DC Comics joint. So um, we'll just see. We'll have to see. And over on the Marvel side, two pieces of news. First off, Morbius. That's right. I bet you forgot about Morbius. Yeah, so Morbius uh, has been officially delayed to October 8th, 2021. I think this is a good thing. It sucks for um, fans of Morbius. I know uh, my good buddy Josh, Josh, Panels to Pixels. I know he's hurting right now, (laughs) but uh, releasing this during the Halloween time, I think is going to be, um, I think it's going to be a good thing overall. I think it's the right move to make sure that this gets released in the spooky season. Plus, it might open the door for me to do a Morbius-centric episode of the Geek Explained podcast, so you never know what that could be could uh, lead to and then finally in film news we have confirmation from kevin feige who did a big old marvel interview this past week that deadpool 3 is confirmed it will be part of the mcu and it will still hold on to its r rating i think that this is um a good thing for the kind of deadpool films that we've seen in the past however i think it's going to be hard to square away deadpool if they're thinking of um crossing him over with other properties. The MCU is very heavily PG-13, so I'm not sure. And I absolutely think that a PG-13 Deadpool film is possible and could even be a fantastic time, but time will tell on what is going to happen with that. And then finally, with film news, we are rounding this out, continuing on the thread of the Kevin Feige um Marvel interview. This is all Disney Plus Marvel TV shows news, but basically, uh, Kevin Feige confirmed some things about future shows when it comes to their episode count and the uh, durations of those episodes. First off, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Loki, and Moon Knight are confirmed each for six 40 to 50 minute episodes. So we are going to get, be getting full on near-hour-long episodes for all three of those shows, which is exciting. We kind of knew that this was going to happen with uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier. Initially, it was supposed to be eight, then it got cut down to six. 
but knowing that this is going to be the case for Loki and Moon Knight makes me excited as well, especially for Moon Knight. You know how hyped I am for Moon Knight, so I'm really looking forward to that. She-Hulk, however, has been confirmed for 10 episodes that will be half-hour episodes, so I can only assume this is going to be very similar to a like a comedic um, legal procedural show where they are gonna you know bite-sized uh law and order episodes with that she hulk possibly breaking the fourth wall kind of flair i'm still really into the idea of she hulk uh the show should be a fun time if nothing else and then finally the big news for dc or uh for dc for marvel tv is wandavision which is dropping this week um wandavision has been confirmed we talked about this uh Recently, in a past episode, that uh, WandaVision initially was going to be eight episodes, but now they're saying it's going to be nine episodes. And Feige confirmed that it will be nine episodes, but the episodes will range from anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes. So that I find really interesting. Uh, Feige did say that the way that they are going to be handling the Marvel shows is very heavily influenced by the reception and the um, production of The Mandalorian, which is good news for me because I really enjoy The Mandalorian. So I'm still really looking forward to WandaVision. It's dropping this Friday as of this recording, and I cannot wait to watch the show. And speaking of which, while that is going to wrap up this week's news, we're going to now roll right on into the main course the entree if you will of this week's episode which is our latest geek explain spotlight on the comic that inspired wandavision that being tom king and gabriel walta's the vision <laughs> In late September, with the leaves just beginning to hint at the fall to come, the visions of Virginia moved into their house at 616 Hickory Branch Lane, Arlington, Virginia, 21301. That is how the story of Tom King and Gabriel Walta's The Vision starts off. And it's very intentionally boring. <laughs> Which is not a word that I would ever use to describe this story. Um, but it is intentionally made to feel very plain, very ordinary. It is the thing you hear read off at the beginning of an incredibly especially boring lecture uh, at a university or a college course like this is something that both sets up everything that you need to know for the 
comic, but also completely does not prepare you for anything that happens in this story. Um, this is, of course, the latest Geek Explain Spotlight, where every single month I take a specific comic, graphic novel, limited series, and talk about why I love it. And with WandaVision kicking off its... Uh, basically kicking off phase four this week uh this is the perfect time to talk about this because for those of you who have only been following the mcu from the movies they have done an incredibly poor job (laughs) of relaying the fact that the show is borrowing heavily from this story um the vision as a narrative is a perfect modern tragedy you want to talk about things you want to talk about stories that are hard to read through stories that are at the same time incredibly engaging to read through vision has got it all and before we really get into the story itself i want to let you know that there will be spoilers here heavy heavy spoilers for this book i do think you should read it if you haven't read it especially with wandavision coming out this week you need to do yourself a favor and read this this is an incredible story taking a character that i never really had a huge investment in growing up and completely turned me around on that specific character and the vision as itself you know as an android is not what i would immediately assume would be the most compelling uh character for a for really any creator to um to really take a stab at much less give them a you know, big 12-issue maxi-series. But the vision is really interesting. And before we get into the story itself, I figure it's good to give a little bit of uh, backstory because that will not only give you a starting point on where to uh, really start this story, but also give you a little bit more context within that character. Uh, The Vision was a character who made his first Marvel appearance in The Avengers number 57 way back in October of 1968. Uh, The Vision was initially created by Ultron, who was a creation himself of Hank Pym. Uh, This was, I believe, Ultron 4 five at this point ultron's been around for a long time and he continues to uh be around but basically the vision was created much like in the mcu by ultron in an attempt to create his perfect vision of what um of uh ultron's goals and the vision was initially a villain for the avengers in his initial appearance he was uh essentially set against the Avengers and was this killing machine that was patterned after the, uh, who was basically created using the brain patterns of, at that point, a deceased Simon Williams, also known as Wonder Man. Um, Pretty quickly, uh, Vision, because he was given the ability to think for himself, turns against Ultron and from there has become a kind of a tentpole member of the Avengers in the same way that the Martian Manhunter who he gets uh, compared to all the time is kind of a member of the Justice League who when you think of the Justice League a lot of times you will think of 
Martian Manhunter, when you think of classic uh, comic book Avengers, the Vision always seems to pop up. And he's had a really interesting history. Uh, the Vision at different times has been both just a an unfeeling synthesoid that is used as kind of the Avengers' nuclear option when all of their other... Um, Efforts are falling to the wayside. He's also been an incredible uh, leading man when it comes to his love interests. Um, he is, of course, most notably linked to Wanda Maximoff, the Scarlet Witch. He was part of the pretty much every single of major Avengers event that has ever come through in the comics. The Vision is somewhere there. And his role on the Avengers is mostly just to be like their their power member. He's got powers where he can uh, phase, he can shift the density of his molecules to make him either able to phase through solid objects or make him incredibly heavy and incredibly strong. He can fly, he has a laser beam. He is, you know, the one of the most powerful members of the Avengers. And throughout the comics, he's had a very interesting place when it comes to his relationships. Really, the major relationships that he's had are, of course, the people who are most closely linked to him, that being Scarlet Witch, his, um, technically, I guess, his brother, which is also his, you know, his, uh, his not clone his originator wonder man um wanda's brother pietro the uh witches of wondagore mountain most uh most specifically agatha harkness um the vision has really not been i think as at the forefront of a story like he is in this story and when coming up with an idea for how he was going to put this together um creators tom king and gabriel walta really wanted to take this character to new heights they wanted to tell a story that would be uniquely suited to the vision as a character and in interviews as well as in the pages of the deluxe edition of the vision which i have sitting right next to me and i will be probably referring to here and there during this episode like i always do with these uh spotlights um the elevator pitch that tom king came up with was this is vision makes a family and initially, when he was kind of, you know, thinking about it, kind of shopping it out to friends within and colleagues within the industry, they were like, okay, that sounds really boring. You know, Vision just makes a robot family. And Tom King very quickly realized that the story that he wanted to tell was not just that Vision makes a robot family. It's what he calls breaking bad vision. Now, I am going to tell you something that I have talked about on this podcast before, but it bears repeating. I have never seen Breaking Bad. I know it's terrible. I'm a terrible human being. I have never seen Breaking Bad. But if Breaking Bad is even half as good as The Vision, I will be watching it by the end of this year. Trust and believe. But basically, that's really what um, got... Tom King's foot in the door when it came to making this story was Vision Makes a Family and it evolves into Vision Breaking Bad. 
And what I love about this story is that not only is it about a character that I had never really had a huge attachment to as a kid, but it wanted to tell a story that I can't see any other character in the Marvel Universe fitting with. This is a uniquely vision story that only he could tell, drawing upon his history as an Avenger, his history as a synthesoid, his very complicated relationships in that history, and it really um it really benefits from that, and it feels unique immediately from that opening page, you know, showing the very picturesque um almost 50s sitcom start of the of the series that really cuts into you know this idyllic version of suburban living and i would be remiss talking about the storytelling of this um of this incredible narrative without mentioning the art gabriel walter is one of my just pinch hitter artists anytime i see his name on a book i know that the art is going to be gorgeous this rang true for pretty much every single time i've read um read a gabriel walter book and when he shows up and he puts the work in you know it is going to be quality and that is really what this 12 issue maxi series is it's quality um you you hear a lot about the storytelling and the narrative is absolutely the script is fantastic but what really brings this uh brings the story to another level and really turns this from a robot story to a living breathing story is Gabriel Walter's visuals. What I love so much about the deluxe hardcover edition, which I would absolutely recommend if you're looking to get like a um, a physical copy of the comic, um, the entire like back half of the of the hardcover is all of the uh, scripts and layouts, the in progress behind the scenes of each issue, which I absolutely adore. And what it comes down to is that. Gabriel Walton knows how to create uh, visuals that both evoke um, evoke a certain uneasiness. You know, they're very idyllic uh, frames, very idyllic iconography throughout the story. But he knows how to make it feel both warm as well as incredibly sterile and cold. His visual storytelling is some of the best that I've ever seen. Um, that's also why I, I always recommend the Donny Cates and Gabriel Walta Doctor Strange run, which I absolutely adore. Um, but he knows how to make each character distinct. He knows how to give even minor characters quirks that will not only make them distinctive in the scenes that they appear in, but also make them make their absence felt throughout the rest of the story. And the visual storytelling that is all over this place, all over the place in this story, is incredible. And this uh, this book would not be the same if you replaced either of the components here. So um, getting down into the nitty-gritty of the story itself, uh, this is your last chance. Spoilers ahead. If you have not read this, uh, read this story, do yourself a favor, pause this, go read it, come back, let's discuss. So diving in, the first thing that I really want to talk about is the concept of dramatic irony. 
Now, Dramatic Irony is a storytelling device wherein the audience knows more than the characters themselves that exist in the story. This uh, provides tension, this provides uh, twists and turns, this provides uh, a way for the audience to build anticipation, whether it's a reveal to a mystery, whether it's to the... um, the results of an action, a consequence. Dramatic irony has been found throughout literature in every single walk of genre. And what is used in this story, that dramatic irony is, I would say, uh, utilized to its best, is the narration. The narration that kicks things off from the very beginning Uh, really sets this story apart from every other comic that was going on at the time. And this story and the narration really um, not only gives you the information that you need, but also sets up this unrelenting dread, even though there are, like I said, very, um, you know, 50s idyllic, images, the narration that's put on top of that is something that um, not only, just hit the mic, sorry, uh, not only counterbalances it, but also sets up the anticipation for the events to come. Uh, Very early on, we meet George and Nora, the neighbors of the Visions, and they have this you know, bringing cookies to their new neighbors, very, like I said, classic suburban um, you know, suburban tropes that you would see in those kind of uh, TV shows. And there is a passage in the narration I'm just going to read here. Um, Basically, it says, Later, near the end of our story, one of the visions will set George and Nora's house on fire. They will die in the flames. George's last thought will be of Nora, how he found his true love and regrets little of what came after. Nora's last thought will be about the water vase of Zenla. She will wonder why it was empty. Right away, you have met these two characters who you've never seen in any other comic before, who do this full tour of the Vision's house, and they see the ever-looming water vase of Zenla, um, and you find out within the first, what is this? Within the first one, two, within the first ten pages of this comic, that at some point they are going to die. And the matter-of-fact way that this narration um, is presented really presents just this incredible um, anxiety for me as a reader, personally. Um, This narration goes a long way in establishing a world, establishing characters, establishing their relationships between each other. You know, the reason that the Vision moves into uh, Arlington, Virginia is because he is essentially made the uh, government liaison for the Avengers. He is reporting directly to the president. And so he creates this family for himself in this very suburban neighborhood and by the way, just remember the water vases and law for later. We're, we're going to talk about it a little later. But um, this initially presents the uh, 
the want, the need, the necessity for the vision. That is to establish a family and make some semblance of a normal life. Which is not easy when you are a super-powered synthesoid that was created by one of mankind's greatest threats. And so this narration that goes throughout the 12 issues of the vision uh, is split across two narrators. For the first six issues, the narration is handled by Agatha Harkness. We don't know this initially, which is, again, fantastic. But by the end of issue six, we know who the narrator was and has been this entire time. And the back half of the uh, of the series, issues seven through twelve, are all narrated by Wanda, the Scarlet Witch. Now you don't know this. Again, they don't um, they don't tell you who is narrating, but you can immediately tell that it's a different narrator because the um, the narration boxes change color and the use of color in both dialogue in the uh, actual character designs is so well utilized by walta and by jordi belair of course who i cannot cannot say enough good things about jordi belair is one of the best colorists in the entire industry and the usage of dramatic irony, the usage of this narration, not only carries us along in the narrative and fills in holes here and there that we might have if we were just reading the dialogue, but it also, like I said, sets up that dramatic irony, that dread. We already know by the, um, by the end of the first issue that one of the visions, one of these four individuals... Um, is going to set their neighbor's house on fire and potentially kill them. We have no context for what this means. We have no context for why this happens, but we just know that it is there. And you are left with some dread throughout every single um, subsequent appearance of George and Nora throughout the story because you know that at some point they're going to die. And what I think is so well done when it comes to the concept of dramatic irony and the idea that we know at the very beginning of the story that something is going to go wrong, but the visions do not know this. No one else in the story knows this, just us, is that the uh, signs are immediately there because, and really the signs are littered throughout the story because of Vin, who is Vision's son, his relationship with Shakespeare. Now, if there's one writer who is, or for me at least, who is most closely associated with the concept of dramatic irony, it's William Shakespeare. He had it littered throughout all of his plays. The audience would get information that the characters would not know, and so they would be left waiting for the characters in each play to find out the information that will either uh, lift them up or completely destroy them. And Vin gets a very... um, He doesn't get a whole lot in the story, and we're going to get to the family themselves. Um, He doesn't get as much as the rest of his family, but his unique relationship with Shakespeare is something that I find fascinating. Because it is telling you there in the story, dramatic irony is important. You know this. And there are things about this story that you will not be able to look away from because of the uh, events that we have already told you are going to happen. And I think it's ironic that when you 
talk about the idea of dramatic irony in the story and its close association with Shakespeare that the first uh, drop of future events to come, George and Nora's house being set on fire by a by one of the visions, is of course followed up with Vin being that vision that sets their house on fire by accident. It's just the the storytelling here is incredible. But getting into the visions themselves, let's talk about them. First off, we got to kick things off with the vision. I love this version of the vision. He is someone who I I know. I know people like the vision and not me saying like, oh, I know a synthesoid who has saved the world 37 times. But I know people who are just trying to make their way and live their life and will do anything to make sure that they are able to live that life. Uh, one of the things that uh, the creators of this story really wanted to push through is that you will find yourself in in the visions. You will find yourself in one of them. You will find things that you see in your life and you see in other people's lives that will immediately connect back to the choices and the, I mean, the consequences that the visions make. And Vision himself in this takes on a very interesting um an interesting role as a father. And I would equate it to when um, when Superman was given that role in the Rebirth series. I know I talk about it all the time, and I will never apologize for talking about it because it's an amazing series. Um, that recontextualized a lot of things for a lot of Superman fans. Making him a dad now gave him certain problems and certain stories that he wouldn't be able to tell or be a part of prior to becoming a father. And it's in this same, um, this same vein that the vision becomes one of the most interesting characters in all of Marvel. And what it does here is that you get to see things from the vision's perspective. Now I am not, saying that we have never gotten stories from the Vision's perspective. If you are a Marvel Comics character, there is a large chance, it's almost a certainty, that the characters that you are a fan of have at one point gotten a story where they are the narrator, where you get uh, this, you know, godlike, omnipotent, omniscient uh, view into their mind on what they're thinking. This one is particularly particularly important and particularly engaging because you get to see all of the stuff that the vision goes through on a day-to-day basis his ideas on what a family should be how he um, interacts with other members of the avengers and other people you know in their immediate community Um, he is more than willing to you know, make sacrifices and like work the nine to five job as an Avenger and as the government liaison. But he also, you know, hopes that the president will give him an actual salary. You know, he hopes and prays that his children will be perceived as normal, even though they it is pretty much an impossibility for them to do so. Uh, he also, and in one of my favorite exchanges, when he is brought down to the Arlington uh, PD station by uh, Detective Lynn, there is an incredible sequence where he counts down 
every single one of the 37 times that he has had a hand in saving the world. And I just, I want to, I want to look it up right, right here because it is one of the most fascinating, um, looks into how a person who has saved the world views that, uh, not just that responsibility, but the successes of having done that. Um, let me pull this up here. So basically, each of the uh, each of the times it's rolling through, there's like, you know, uh, Amortis, Operation Galactic Storm, Jocasta, you know, Ultron shows up at least four or five times. And then at the very end, uh, it, st it states 37 times he saved us all. But it's not enough, is it? In the end, I mean. Those 37 occasions when he was all that stood between life and death, between everything and nothing, when he had been beaten, torn, tortured, and instead of simply slipping into the ground as we surely would have done, he raised his head one more time, stared one more time into the screaming face of evil, and said one more time in his simple voice with no emotion, no care, I am the vision of the Avengers. I will not fall. This recontextualizes the vision for me at least this makes him this character who even though you look at him as kind of like oh he's their martian manhunter he is their um he is their you know tool essentially for the avengers to use in conflicts the vision was created to destroy the the vision was created to be an enemy of the avengers and he in his free will chose to become a hero chose to become part of this team that he was created to demolish and chose to save the world at least 37 times the book does state that it's probably more but there are 37 distinct times that he can think of that he saved the world and yet the narration continues on 37 times and all of it cannot redeem him from this this small moment when he crossed to the other side when he entered into the madness that was soon to come this small moment this small lie and it in this moment it breaks everything that we know about the vision because as a synthesoid as a robot essentially the vision has always been known to be this essentially a fact checker he is truthful he states things plainly as they are and this is kind of the moment when he shows his capacity to be more when he gives us the first hint of like something could go wrong and we would have no way to really address it or stop it and the usage of this is fascinating um, the vision, as the story goes on, becomes more and more unhinged, becomes more and more um, focused and obsessed with trying to make his, trying to give his family the life that they deserve. And when it comes down to his child being killed by his brother and having to make this. Um, make this choice you know make this uh calculation as it were on you know my son is dead and his killer is still alive this is wrong he makes the choice and he goes after his brother against the avengers and we finally get to see and i'm sure you know we've seen it before in other um 
and other stories where the vision has either been hacked or overridden, but this is the first time that at least I, as a comic book reader, uh, really saw what the potential was for the vision when he was created to destroy the Avengers. Because I don't know if you've noticed this, and maybe I'm wrong, but the Vision has never gotten any kind of big power boost. Now, power boosts are kind of inherent when it comes to comics. At some point or another, characters will get power boosts to either um, temporarily deal with the conflict or to set them up for a new status quo going into maybe like a new writer, a new arc. But the Vision is an android, and yes, he's had his body rebuilt several times but he has never had his capabilities expanded he has never become you know cosmic level he has never uh, been raised or elevated in his power set he has always been this dangerous and yet he has chosen not to be and this is the point where he decides that his family is more important than his oath to be an avenger and it is terrifying. He becomes a terrifying creature. And then when the um, conflict is resolved, we are brought back to his humanity. We are brought back to the idea that, yes, the Vision has a soul. He has one. Whether, you know, you can get into the debate, do machines have souls, whatever. The Vision in himself, as a singular identity, as a singular construct, has a soul. And... The heights that he achieves in his family unit are balanced out, if not uh, overridden, by the distinct tragedies that he has to face over the course of the story. And it is incredible watching him go from issue to issue. However, that all being said, the vision is not the main focus of this story. And that would lead you to believe that maybe it's his kids, his twins, Viv and Vin. Now, Viv, as we've seen, has gone on to become a member of the Champions, has begun, has gone on to become a, I would say, relatively well-respected member of the Marvel Universe. Maybe not right now with Outlaw going on, but Viv Vision is an established character who has now evolved past the events that took place in the story. Vin has not. Vin lived and died in this story. And their narrative of the two of them yearning to become something more, yearning to be normal, yearning to become um, human in a way, is one of the driving forces of this story. Uh, Viv is attacked at the very end of the first issue and is out of commission for at least a couple issues. And... Vin is kind of left by himself, and the two of them, you know, were enrolled in a public school while at the same time, I think this is, like, one of the most prestigious schools in America, and, like, um, Vin goes through a lot over the course of this story. Um, he learns what it means to not be normal, he finds a passion when it comes to Shakespeare, um, he is there during, uh, an attack on his family, he grows, and he makes the first arguably you know the first big mistake when it comes or i guess maybe not the first but one of the the first public mistake in the story where he you know in response to uh chris kinski you know trying to talk some talk some trash to him uh chokes this kid out 
because of the trauma that he's gone through. And Vin deals with a lot of trauma during this story, um, all pretty much culminating in his death at the hands of Victor Mancha. And don't worry, we are going to get into him. Um, Vin is this tragic character who is yearning to become more, yet will never achieve it, um, which is incredible and fascinating. And Viv goes on a very similar journey where she is also trying to become more. And arguably, she succeeds where Vin is unfortunately not able to because she not only builds some kind of loose friendship with Chris Kinski, really honestly kind of based off of just one conversation, but it's really the most human conversation that she has in the entire story. But upon the death of Chris and upon the all of the events that happen after that, Viv goes through her share of trauma too. So we get to see how she deals with trauma. She, we get to see how she deals with depression. And like any teenage girl, she, really any teenager just as a blanket statement, um, she doesn't know how to deal with it. She doesn't know how to deal with all of these new and incredibly terrifying uh, instances and um, events that are happening not just around her, but also to her. You know, the attack on her in the very end of the first issue is uh, horrifying. You know, the Grim Reaper, you know, shoves his blade straight through her abdomen, and she is very nearly put out of commission forever, in that moment before the story has even gotten its chance to get off the ground. And as she becomes more and more obsessed over this conversation with Chris, as she becomes more and more obsessed with the concept of becoming normal and fitting in, the events that uh, unfold with the death of her brother, the uh, role in that her uncle played, uh, the slow descent into madness of both of her parents, um, Viv has to deal with a lot and she by the end of the story has come to probably the closest that any of the visions come to to a full and complete character arc where she has grown into realizing that not being normal is okay that she has gone through adversity she has gone through every literally the worst that life could throw at her and she is given the opportunity to rise above it and as we see at the end of the story she rises above it she flies right into the sky symbolizing her um really her achieving that goal of wanting to be something more but she's not the lead of the story either as as much of an arc as she gets, as much focus as she gets in the story, Viv nor Vin are the stars of the vision. Virginia is the star. The mother, the wife, the most compelling character in the story. Uh, Virginia is the absolute leading character of the narrative. And... That really kicks off in the first issue. You know, we get to see immediately during the opening scene where George and Nora are getting this uh, tour of the house that she, there's something up with her. There's something going on when uh, Vision introduces them to the uh, the Everbloom, I think, from Wondagore. Uh, you, the narration makes sure to point out that she gets quiet. 
because I mean, this was a gift given to the vision for his wedding to the Scarlet Witch. And it is in their house with his new wife. Of course, it would be awkward, but it goes a long way to present to the audience that Virginia is not just, you know, this robot that Vision built to be a companion. She is someone who has emotions. She is someone who has hopes and dreams and prejudices and biases. And when she reacts to the attack from Grim Reaper in the first issue by viciously beating him to death with the uh, cooking tray that she was gifted by George and Nora. Um, That is the first moment where you figure out that something is going to be terribly wrong. That is the first mistake that is made during this story. Each of the visions make a mistake throughout this story. Vision makes his mistake when he chooses to... I mean, arguably the mistake was to make a family, but his main mistake was to lie. Was to lie for his family. To make the choice to put his family over what many people would consider the greater good. Now, whether or not this mistake um, is inherently wrong or not is completely uh, subjective, and I don't have those answers here. But that is the mistake he makes. Vin makes the mistake of choking out Chris Kinski. That snowballs into what happens with everything else. Viv makes the mistake of trying to... Arguably, she makes the mistake of putting more weight into her conversation with Chris. She makes the mistake of trying to be normal, of trying to fit in. And Virginia's first major mistake is to kill the Grim Reaper. Now, the Grim Reaper is a character who uh, is really kind of known as a C-list Marvel villain, but he is notable because his brother is Simon Williams, the Wonder Man. And so the Vision and the Grim Reaper have always had a really odd relationship. Um, and this uh, this story shows Grim Reaper at probably his most deranged when he, you know, essentially attacks the Visions in their home while Vision is away on Avengers business, uh, trying to kill all of them because, you know, they're not real, they're not his family. And he is not just in denial, but he is, he is off the deep end. And when Virginia kills him, that kicks off every single thing that happens in this story. Uh, because following that, she buries him in the backyard. That act is recorded by Chris Kinski's father who then uh, uses the um, uses that video to blackmail her to try and get her to leave she responds by you know trying to uh, communicate to him that she is that she and her family deserve to be there and unfortunately is complicit in the murder of um, of Mr. Kinski's son, Chris, which then, of course, snowballs into Viv's depression. Uh, we get to see that her actions result in Envision's uh, uh, lie. So she is really the inciting incident for everything. And as the story goes on, she become, she starts to become more and more... Um, 
she starts to fall further and further into madness, which is unfortunate because I think, you know, there is, of course, that possibility. In another alternate Earth, I'm sure the Visions are living a happy suburban life together. But in this reality, in the Marvel 616 reality, um, Virginia Vision, unfortunately, lets the snowball, the snowball effect get to her. There is a distinct domino effect that happens with every single action she takes. A consequence happens that snowballs into the next and then the next and into the next. And as she becomes more and more um, intent on making her family as normal as possible, we get to see the conflicts that arise out of that. First off, of course, the blackmail that results in not just a son being killed, but a father being put into a coma that he is unlikely to wake up from. Um, her actions result in the vision making a choice to put his family above the rest of the world, as, I mean, honestly, any husband or father would in this kind of situation, which is unfortunate, but also incredibly human. Um, and as she continues on in the story, you know, as things start to kind of close in on her, she makes choices that result in not just the climax and the, um, the conflicts to escalate, but she also makes the sacrifice and the choice to solve that conflict and to take out the one uh, factor, the one variable that is causing all of the um, all of the terrible things that are happening, which is herself. And it's um, God, it is uh, fascinating to watch her throughout this story. Uh, the moments where she kind of glitches out, the moments where she um, makes choices that would otherwise uh, that would otherwise um, get her not just arrested but probably destroyed, and as she says, executed as a uh, as a threat to humanity. Um, but the choice that she makes to save the Vision from his destiny and to take that upon herself, and also Again, take yourself out of the equation using the uh, using the corrosive liquid from the vase of Zenla um, is again incredibly human, and in that in that way, she in fact achieves the goal of the visions as a family to become more human, to become normal. And I can't say in you know if I was put in a similar situation that I would act any differently. It's depressing and it's sad, but it is the most human, you know, one of the most human characters that I've ever read in comics also happens to be a second generation synthesoid. It's fascinating, but all of this is kind of set around the obsession and the goal of, being normal of becoming normal which puts a very heavy spotlight on the concept of being different i mean we get to see the avengers as we've never seen them before as a day job as a nine to five um and watching the vision you know talk about like oh you know i need to be there tonight you know maybe i'll call in nova he was supposed to have you know dinner with his mom but it's like it's like using hot schedules i don't know if you're familiar with hot schedules but anyone who is familiar with using hot schedules basically you know calling out getting someone to cover your shift uh stuff like that is fascinating and i love the use of that um at the same time 
within that same breath, we get to see how how even superpowered individuals and people who have uh, saved the world 37 times cannot are not immune to xenophobia, are not immune to the idea of prejudice. You know, there are multiple moments throughout the story where they are called things, where um, the principal of their school, who is kind of, who seems kind of like a scumbag, but also at the same time, you know, it's complicated. All of the characters in the story are incredibly human, and I love it so much. But um, he is one. He is basically, you know, equating their their child to a gun. You know, there are multiple moments when you know th- there's the moment when you know two neighborhood kids are you know spray painting on their garage, "Go home, socket lovers." Like it's it's something that is both incredibly disturbing and yet incredibly, and I hate to use this word, but incredibly American at the same time. Um, everyone, everyone who has ever looked different or felt different has gone through something similar to this. And so it is fascinating to see how this affects someone who is known, who is a known Avenger and who is a known superhero as well as his family. And it drives this obsession with becoming normal of becoming accepted and it is ultimately one of the contributing factors to all of the incredibly unfortunate choices that are made in service of trying to be accepted by people who probably would never accept them under any circumstances and it also you know puts a big uh spotlight uh, on the concept of family and what family is and where in this sea of uh discrimination and hatred and prejudice you know family is where you are going to find your safe harbor and the concept of that of a family willing to do whatever it took to maintain that safe harbor is in fact the crux of the story the vision almost kills the entire you know, Marvel Universe, or would kill the entire Marvel Universe to secure his family and to secure their future. And it's fascinating to see how far a character like this would go and how incredibly relatable a character like this is in that effort when you put it through the lens of the events of the story. Now, speaking of that family... Um, this story also puts a big emphasis on the extended family as well as the history of that extended family. Uh, Ultron and the Scarlet Witch are two prominent figures, though in very different ways. Ultron is almost used as kind of a boogeyman. This idea of the vengeful and sinister creator that, you know, created the vision in his image and saw his creations, you know, work against him. And in that way, it's also kind of ironic that the vision in those specific terms kind of meets the same fate as his father. You know, it is, you know, the father becomes this, or the son becomes the father, the father becomes the son, all of that stuff, where the vision creates his family to be normal. And they, because they are given free will, uh, go against that programming because of who they are and how they were built. And the Scarlet Witch kind of has this um, this outside force, this otherworldly um, effect 
on not just the vision, but the story itself. As I stated before, she is the uh, unnamed narrator until the very final issue for the back half of the series. And she is also a prominent member of Vision's Vision's, um, past, his history. In fact, Virginia is... Had just in the same way that the Vision's brain patterns are copied off of uh, Wonder Man, Virginia's is Virginia's patterned off of Scarlet Witch, which in a way both explains her um, kind of explains away her instability, while at the same time uh, giving us the opportunity to compare the two. You know, there are moments throughout the story where the Vision is compared to Wonder Man, both in iconography as well as actual, like, flashbacks. But what I love about the uh, the usage of Wonder Man, as well as his brother Grim Reaper, is that they feel just like uh, both Scarlet Witch and Ultron, they both feel like they are looming over the story throughout. You know, the Grim Reaper is killed in the first issue, but his presence and his influence is a driving force throughout the entire story um his death is what constitutes you know the lies his you know being buried in the backyard is what constitutes the blackmail his you know gauntlet being dug up by george and nora's dog is what gives birth in essence to sparky the dog you know all of these characters have this um this overwhelming weight on the shoulders of all the visions, which is fascinating when you think about how little they actually factor into the story. Scarlet Witch appears in, I think, three issues out of the entire run, and yet you feel her influence. You feel her um, her presence throughout not just uh, Virginia's actions, but also Vision's. You know, the idea that that was the love of his life. And in the absence of that, he tried to create another. You know, the, uh, I believe it was issue seven, shows an incredible bookend of both the first time that he and Wanda got biblical and the next time that he and Virginia essentially do the same. But he tells this joke um, about a talking toaster, which I think is incredibly um, relevant to the story. Um, the idea that this, the joke is basically, you know, two toasters are sitting on top of a counter. One toaster says to the other, you know, do you ever sometimes feel empty? And the other toaster turns to the first toaster and says, oh my God, a talking toaster. While being an absolutely terrible joke, um, it also provides the really, I mean, the thesis statement of this story the idea that vision thought himself as a unique concept and in the effort to create things in his image he created something that while similar to him also was independent of him and it's there are lots of layers <laughs> to this story in both the um, iconography as well as the actual narrative. Uh, but that brings us to the final member of the extended family, that being Victor Mancha. Uh, Victor Mancha is a character who you would be forgiven for not knowing. Uh, Victor Mancha was the second child of Ultron, 
literally actually uh, Vision's brother, and he was created to more or less out of the scraps of an old uh, Ultron uh, five, six, seven, whatever unit by this mad scientist. And he was given the, you know, given these false memories and believed himself to be a a 16 year old teenager. When in fact he was a synthesoid designed to just like the vision destroy the Avengers. He was given the power. I believe it's some form of electromagnetism and he used his powers to become part of the runaways uh, and he has this destiny, and it is spelled out, again, in the dramatic irony narrative, where at a certain point, he will take on the name Victorious. He will join the Avengers, and upon gaining their trust, his original programming will kick in, and he will kill them all. And yet, it says at the same time, at the end of our story, or near the end of our story, Victor Mancha will lie dead at Vision's feet, which he does. And as he um, as he does, as the lights go out, he will say to himself, I finally did it. I defeated Destiny. I will not be victorious. And his character is so intriguing to me because he, just like any family, is the addict. There is always an addict in every family. If you don't think there is, I'm sorry. But there is. There just is. Um, and he is addicted to Wakandan vibranium because as a synthesoid, he is shaken by the events of his past as well as all of the adventures and fights that he is involved in. And the vibranium centers him. And so he uses it essentially like a drug. And he is, uh, he's kind of this guy who believes himself, you know, believes that he is destined for greater things, but time and again falls short and so when he is tasked by the avengers to spy on his family his own brother and his you know wife and kids he jumps up the opportunity because even though it would be betraying his brother he would be perhaps taking the next step towards that destiny towards that greater uh purpose and when he is uh when he unfortunately kills um Vin, who discovers him relaying all of the intel that he's gotten from the visions, uh, it's tragic because you know that they are both, they're two sides of the same coin. Both of them wanting to be normal, both of them wanting to, both of them basically trying to fight against their, um, their place in life. And Victor Mancha then becomes the focus of the final issues where the Vision makes a decision that he is going to kill Victor Mancha for killing his son. And when he is faced with a Vision at the very end of the story, he welcomes it. He knows that this is what needs to happen. I am going to be killed because I accidentally killed my nephew. And... You see, when he is finally hit, the lights start to go out, he's killed, he lies dead at the Vision's feet, um, that moment where he smiles and he says, I will not be victorious. And it's, oh, it's incredibly tragic yet at the same time, so amazing. And it's that obsession with trying to aspire to be greater that ultimately undoes Victor. And really, it's the concept of obsession that 
makes the dominoes fall throughout the story. The obsession with trying to live a normal life. The obsession with trying to secure a future for Vision's family. The obsession with trying to be normal. The obsession with trying to fit in. That really builds and allows these dominoes to fall one by one until we are faced with possible elimination of the human race. And the series as a whole is incredible when it comes to telling that story, telling the story of um, of escalation. But for me, there were two issues that really stand out. My two favorite issues. My first, my favorite issue of the entire series is issue number six. Issue number six is where we get the... Um, essentially, we get what is known... It's called uh, P versus NP, and it is where essentially everything is laid out um this is the issue that tells you what is going to happen in the back half this is you know important because it marks a lot of milestones within the series uh this is the issue where vision finds out about the grim reaper about the grim reaper buried behind the backyard um this is where uh and following that i just have to say what i love so much about this issue is not just what we do see with all of the uh foreboding the um entrance of agatha harkness but it's what we don't see because the issue opens up with just kind of this normal you know family um conversation talking to each other at like the breakfast table and so god it's so cool I'm, I'm flipping through right now um but it's it starts off with uh the neighbor's dog george and nora's dog running out and finding its way into vision's backyard where he digs up the grim reaper's corpse and as he bites into the gauntlet of the grim reaper he is electrocuted and dies and <laughs> as vision goes out to investigate he finds not just this fried dog, but also the corpse of the Grim Reaper. The very next page cuts immediately to the next morning, where George shows up at the front door asking, like, hey, have you seen my dog? I'm just asking around. And, Nor and Virginia is like, yeah, sure, come in. And the house is trashed, like trashed from wall to wall. Furniture is thrown everywhere. Um, walls are broken. Stuff's knocked over. We see this incredibly sad image of Viv just sobbing, you know, uncontrollably in the corner. Um, but Virginia's just like, yeah, we're remodeling, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you know something went down. Vision said, or v Vision discovered that Virginia had been telling a lie, that he had been keeping a she had been keeping a secret from him, and they had a fight, you can assume. Uh, the entire backyard is also, like, completely dug up. Um, and it is... Oh, I love it. Because not only is it telling you everything you need to know without actually showing you, yeah, they had a fight. But it also, you know, brings up an image that people might be familiar with. You know, someone visiting a family member or neighbor after your parents had a fight. Something in the air is wrong. Something is, you know, amiss. But everyone is too polite to say something. Uh, this is followed up by the Vision, who is in their basement or somewhere, 
basically operating on this dead dog to create Sparky. The splash of him showing his face with the blood that's splattered on his face, almost looking like a teardrop, um, is incredibly striking. And we see that, you know, this moment after he is, you know, able to bring this dog back in the form of the synthesoid Sparky, Sparky dog, uh, this moment where he's sitting in the lab, you know, his hands or his gloves covered in blood, and he's realizing that life has now changed. Um, he is able to bring Sparky to life. He's able to give, you know, his, you know, in the same way that you would, you know, hear a traditional story. You know, the parents had a fight. The dad left. You know, everyone was really um, sad. Dad came back, brought home a dog. You know, that's such a such a mundane normal story and yet in the context of this it um it provides the crux of everything that's going to happen after so like the narration again i had to, i had to talk about this uh, the reaper had come vision had failed he would continue to fail should he then continue the vi- the answer for the vision was yes he would continue he would fix what had been broken he would hide what he could not fix he would make his family the easy explanation of his answer would be that he, who longed to be human, recognized that this was the human decision. That every day, all men and women make the same choice, to go on even though they cannot possibly go on. In truth, however, this was not his reasoning. In the end, Vision simply came to understand that he could not choose between family and practicality. Indeed, in considering the situation, it was clear. He had no choice at all. And then it shifts over to show Agatha Harkness speaking to all of the Avengers and saying, and so the Vision has abandoned the illusion of P in favor of the reality of NP. He will now do anything, everything, in his attempt to find happiness for his wife and children. He will kill you. He will kill your families. He will raise the world. And I ask you, how could you possibly ask for a better lead-in to the second half of the story? It's so... Oh, man. It's... The issue itself is layered so well with subtext and just context and this warning of what is to come and knowing that the stories that are have been so far at least for the most part contained into this you know suburb are now going to expand and have ramifications in the larger marvel universe it's it's wonderful it is my favorite issue in the entire series but i do want to also spotlight my very close second that's issue number 11 which is the consequences issue this is the issue when everything just goes to hell um in the in the issue prior at the end of issue 10 Following the death of uh, Vin, Vision's family is put on lockdown, essentially. They can't leave. There's like a force field that Tony Stark had put up. And at the end of the, uh, at the end of that issue, at the end of issue 10, the Vision like watches this recording of, um, of Vin back when they, you know, were just happy, a normal family. And he watches this recording as, um, as Vin is trying to like show him this, you know, this uh, passage from I believe it was Merchant of Venice, and the Vision is just like watching it, sitting alone in his room, 
And as the recording ends, he's like left there in darkness. And the next scene is him decked out in his, you know, superhero gear. And he pushes himself through the, uh, through the force field and out to go kill Victor Mancha. And like the issue number 11 kicks off with like just, uh, Virginia and Viv sitting at the table with Sparky kind of floating around and Virginia basically tells uh, Viv like hey um, just so you know your dad just went to uh, go kill your uncle Uh, if he succeeds then uh, he will probably be incarcerated and we will probably be deactivated and destroyed or if he doesn't succeed we will probably be deactivated and destroyed and (laughs) Viv is just like oh and then the next, uh, the next image, the next page is this two-page spread, and it's one of, if not my favorite images in the entire story, which is uh, just Vision floating above the ground on one half, and the other half is all of the Avengers assembled against him. And right above them, because they're outside of a uh, a movie theater, they have a billboard showing the showing the film Omega the Unknown the movie, starring who else but Simon Williams the Wonder Man. And the way that he is positioned on the uh, on the billboard looks like he's not only facing an opposition to Vision, but he's also looming over the entire proceedings. His legacy is felt throughout the entire story. But this is the issue where Virginia comes clean on all of her, all of the things that happen. She tells Viv about her uh, her role in getting Chris killed. Vision goes up against. Um, Vision goes up against the entire Avengers roster and just absolutely wrecks all of them. Um, uh, Virginia ends up accidentally killing Sparky, and she, through the use of the um, of the petals of the uh, Wondagore Everbloom, sees the future. And Vision shows up to kill Victor, and the only one standing in his way is Scarlet Witch. And they have this heartfelt conversation where Vision basically decides, I'm I'm going to incapacitate you, and then goes to Victor. And he's just like, I have to do what I have to do. And then this hand just reaches out from behind Victor, and it's Virginia. She's phased in. She pulls out Victor's heart, killing him. And we get, like I said earlier, that amazing panel where he's like, I shall not be victorious. Happy that he had avoided his fate. And Victoria, Victoria, Virginia, in essence, kills him so that Vision can't. And she prevents the future that, uh, that Agatha saw and that she saw. And it is incredible. It is absolutely incredible. It is a wonderful, uh, wonderful issue. If I had to have a third issue, it would probably be that last uh, issue number 12 where... Uh, Virginia essentially like lies about everything that happened, basically saying that all of the actions that the vision took were because she tampered with his mind and she drinks some of the corrosive liquid from the vase. And oh man, it's so, it's so good. And it's so fascinating to see like the how much emotion you can get out of like robots, out of synthesoids. And in essence, it be, it becomes really this story is Virginia's story. And it is the story of the sacrifices that one makes for their family. And through this, we see that 
her story is, you know, her impact, her legacy is the profound influence that she has had on not only the vision, but also Viv. You know, Viv, as we talked about before, goes through this full character arc where she, you know, realizes that she doesn't have to fit in, that she doesn't have to be normal, and that she can rise above, you know, the terrible things that have happened to her. The final, you know, um, conversation that is had in this book is between her and Vision. And as she flies away, we see that Vision kind of phases back into... Uh, the house which is visually telling us that he can't let it go the way that viv can fly away and she can rise above it vision has been forever changed and he can't and the last page is showing that he is working on either repairing or building a new virginia and he has been irrevocably irrevocably changed by this story and the vision will never be the same after this and honestly that's i mean that's the vision that is you know the story the 12 issue story if you haven't read this read it if you have read it read it again reading it again for this episode was such a treat and such a joy um sometimes when i'm getting back into you know rereading something for an episode i have to take it in bits in bites because i know what's going to happen but this one still even though i knew all the twists and turns you can't put it down. Um, if you are excited for WandaVision, check this out. Because this is going to be where, they're per- where they are pulling a majority of the iconography, at least that I've seen in the trailers. I haven't watched any of the like you know first, first look clips or stuff like that. But just from the trailers, just from the premise, a lot of stuff is being pulled from this. And it's kind of a crime that Tom King and Gabriel Walta aren't getting more... Uh, more recognition for this but reading this prior to WandaVision I think is going to give you context on some of the choices they make and also for me at least opens up a lot of potential uh, amazing avenues that they can go through in this story I am beyond hyped for WandaVision it is going to be it has been touted so far from you know early reviews, first reactions, that it is something different, and it is kicking off Phase 4 the right way. And so I'm very excited about this. Uh, the Vision is an incredible story, and if I have to leave you with anything, if I have to give you a logline, if I have to give you in one sentence what this story means, what the thesis behind this story, first off, it is Virginia's story, and um, overall... In essence, if I could whittle it down to a phrase from the Vision's history, it is, I too shall be saved by love. It is a, uh, it's a classic um, line that is always attributed to Scarlet Witch and the Vision. And I think that phrase is apropos because in the end, even though she made terrible choices, Virginia saved Vision because of her love. So in essence... The Vision was saved by Virginia's love. Through all of this, what this story is about it is a modern tragedy about family, about obsession, about normalcy, about what it means to make sacrifices, and what it means to be saved by love.
It is now time for the Wild Card Weekly Review. That's right, before we dive head first and feet first into WandaVision starting off next episode, uh, we are doing one last Wild Card Weekly Review. And this week, we are reviewing the new mutants. I know, it's uh, I'm a little late. I realize that. I've been waiting to watch the film. Um and I'll be honest with you, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. It's not a good movie. I'm just going to let you know that right off the bat. But I was pleasantly surprised with some of the stuff that went into this film. Um, this is kind of the last piece of the Fox X-Men era. Um, this is also kind of, I guess, the last... Uh, movie set in that universe it's a little dicey here and there on where exactly it is in the universe what timeline i know i'm pretty sure that it's in the logan timeline whenever like wherever that fits into anything um because we do get context cues and all that but i was charmed by this movie it there's a lot of problems and i'm gonna you know I'm not going to spend this whole time talking about them, um, but there were definite problems. But at the same time, I think there were things that I personally really enjoyed. First off, uh, we got to talk about the new mutants themselves. We got Danny Moonstar, who was kind of our lead. Um, she was fine. Uh, they did a weird thing, you know, like they've done with all of the X-Men films, where you don't really understand what her powers are. Um it's a little confusing because in the comics, she's a character named Mirage who essentially makes illusions. And even though they did take some of her um, her abilities in the uh, in the film, they kind of like warped them to where like, yes, she makes illusions, but they're illusions that can actually like hurt you or it's it was very unclear exactly how her powers worked. Um and overall, she was kind of, for me at least, kind of a weak lead. I was much more interested in Ileana Rasputin, and not just because she was played by the incredible Anya Taylor-Joy, who is just absolutely crushing it. I know that this was, like, supposed to come out back in 2018, so this was, like, before her, you know, ascent, as it were, but... This is, you know, another solid performance in a so-so movie. Um, she was fun. She really got down the kind of attitude that I always envision. Uh, uh, envision. Um, that I always kind of saw with Ileana, especially like the modern Ileana who is, you know, warped by her uh, experiences in hell. Uh, this is exactly how I see Ileana in the comics with, you know, changes here and there. Um, but I really liked her portrayal. Uh, following that, I really dug Sam Guthrie. Um, I can't remember his name, the actor, but he's from Stranger Things. And even though the accent was a little suspect, I loved everything about his character. Uh, the characterization, the acting, the usage of his power was really cool. Um, there's a scene where he's like, quote unquote, like training, where he's essentially like strapped himself to this big ass like rock or a brick or a boulder, like in the middle of the basketball court for some reason. And he's like strapped himself in and he's just using his power to either like train or there were certain aspects where it was like, is he trying to like hurt himself because of his like guilt for the tragedy that he committed? 
Um, I really dug this character, and I, I wish we would get more from him. Uh, we also got Rain Sinclair, uh, Maisie Williams from Game of Thrones, who pretty much played Wolfsbane as I understood Wolfsbane. You know, I... I've never been a huge, you know, Wolfsbane, you know, Mark, but uh, from what I could tell, just by the usage of her in this film, it's as close to a ripped off the page uh, Wolfsbane that we've gotten or might get, who knows? Uh, and I really enjoyed it. I liked, I will say, uh, and we'll talk about it in a second, I liked, you know, the usage of her. Uh, I loved the. Uh, w branding that they had on her, which, you know, I'm sure was at least in the context of the film, her being a quote unquote witch, but it could also be a W for Wolfsbane. Um, really good stuff. And then finally rounding out the, uh, the class was Roberto da Costa, who is, um, I mean, it's, it's every, you know, douchebag, jock, rich boy that you've seen in a coming-of-age movie. Like, it's really... But at the same time, I guess that is really who Roberto da Costa is in comics. So I can't... I can't... I can't fault them for going that route. Uh, I really wish we had gotten a, uh, a better handle on his powers, personally. Um, and honestly, a lot of that when it comes down to the... Uh, to the power sets and the effects, it was kind of uneven overall in this film. There were a lot of things that on one hand made sense. And then in, on another hand was like, what are we, what are you working with here? Uh, Ilyana's powers have so much context in the, um, uh, that you kind of need to know in the comics that to just throw all of the current abilities that she has at a viewer who doesn't, who may not know that context, uh, could be very confusing. Like I said already, uh, Danny's powers were uh, tweaked here and there. I think they did the same thing for uh, Roberto or Sunspot. Um, his powers didn't make a whole lot of sense either. You know, in one point he's like oh he's basically he's just he's on fire and then in another it's like oh it gives him enhanced strength like it's very unclear very sloppy um i again though my favorite was uh was cannonball sam guthrie like the usage of his powers was super cool i wish we had seen more of them and fortunately because of the manner in which this film is kind of put together um the effects either go from looking all right to super shoddy and like really just not on the quality of a film that was made in the last five years so overall i mean it's it effects wise and powers wise there was a lot of work to be done the thing the thing i honestly did like about it though was um i got some serious xavier school vibes from this from this film the way that they handle like i want to say like the second the second quarter of the film, and I know that's very particular, but like when you're getting to know all of these characters in the like hospital school, quote unquote format, you know, you've got, like I said, cannonball doing his training. You've got the different characters, like meeting Danny, introducing themselves to her. She's learning about their powers, them kind of clashing very breakfast club style. I dug that. And that's how I've always envisioned how like 
an MCU X-Men franchise would be, whether it was like a Disney Plus show or like an actual film franchise, getting characters who are kind of like on the younger end and growing up with them through the usage of Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters, I thought would have been, I still think, could be an incredible way to kind of re-flavor the X-Men to set them apart from the Fox era, and I think it worked well here. I wish there had been more of this. I wish there had been more of figuring out, like, okay, people are trying to train up their powers, you know. I, I really dug the whole, like, oh, you know, we think, or they basically think that they're training us to be X-Men, and it was it was fun, and I like that aspect of it, but they did have to kind of set that off to the side to bring in the horror elements, which I thought definitely could have used some work. Um, the initial vision where uh sam gets kind of brought into the coal mine where he accidentally killed uh his dad and their entire uh team i thought was really well done and then after that it was kind of a law of diminishing returns uh the pool scene was appropriately creepy but just kind of devolved into oh he's on fire now and then the um the smiling men i think they were called were creepy uh with the masks and then when you took the masks off and it was just like oh the masks are just like their faces and their faces look the exact same i don't know it was weird it didn't hit as um as creepy for me so i and then you know the demon bear and i just i i think this film was trying to be three different things it was trying to be a coming of age story it was trying to be a team building uh breakfast club style movie and then it was also trying to be a uh, a horror movie and i just i don't think that all three of those meshed as well as they could have uh though i will say I would have thrown away the entire rest of the film and just had an entire hour and a half of magic versus the demon bear because the hype that came from the scene where magic's or where Ilyana is basically just like, okay, I'm going to like, I'm going to go fight this bear. And the armor effect on her arm, I thought was actually really cool. Her pulling out the spirit sword, um, and then that really like cheesy yet at at the same time really cool line where they're like yeah you can't fight that it's magic and she turns back you know the portal to hell behind her she's like so am i and then she just starts going after this bear i thought it was really cool and i liked the uh bringing in each one of them to try and like defend uh danny as she was unconscious during that during that scene I think I would have liked a lot more again and I keep saying this but I would have liked a lot more of Cannonball just him and Magic working together to fight this giant demon bear um but I mean it's you know the film was already trying to cram so much story and so much like character building and world building within its runtime that I don't think it could have sustained much more of what they were trying to do um overall the film was a really good idea the trailers the initial trailer um i remember a lot of hype being around that i remember the i you know a lot of people that i follow in social media and on like youtube were like we're getting an x-men horror film this is gonna be great and i love the concept i like the um 
the ideas behind creating essentially this asylum where Danny Moonstar's uh, illusions are forcing people to go through their worst trauma. I like that. I like that concept. But um, in that specific aspect, I think I would have preferred Danny to be kind of the almost to be in like the doctor role if there were because they did like a really weird sharp left turn with the uh the doctor who can create force fields um where she was trying to be like oh kind of being like their mentor and their doctor but then like halfway through no she's the villain and she works for the essex corporation and i think if they had kind of used danny in that role and gave the pov to one of the other kids it would have worked better because then it's like it's this you know therapist doctor person who is using this asylum and using this hospital and using you know her powers to impose these visions upon these kids to either torture them or force them to break through their trauma and like i said there's a lot there there's stuff that you can do with that but i think just the ex- execution just ended up making this kind of another blip on the radar you know it's not the worst x-men film um at some point i'll have to go through and rank them. i ranked them already you know on the podcast but i didn't account for certain films because they were like x-men adjacent so it'll be interesting you know kind of thinking about slotting this at some point if you want me to do an updated list feel free to let me know and i can do that but um yeah just not my cup of tea not my jam however i did think that the film had a lot of charm the characters i thought certain characters were strong and i wish that we could see more of them the film absolutely sets up for more stories um but we're not gonna see them and that you know that kind of sucks so uh that's it for this week's wildcard weekly review next week as i stated before we are going to be diving right into wandavision i cannot wait to talk about this show i cannot wait to watch this show especially going over you know the vision comic again it get it got me hyped all over again to watch this so tune in next week for that as we kick off a brand new edition of the weekly review but for now we're going to roll right on into this week's comics countdown welcome back to this week's comics countdown this is the segment of our show where i talk about the comics that i think you should be picking up this week whether it's at your local comic book shop on comiXology or however you get your comics these are the ones i think you should definitely take a look at but before we get into this week's books we've got to take a look back at last week's books with the geek explain pick of the week of last week and future state just all over the place last week um lots of books to uh lots of contenders honestly i ended up actually enjoying uh death metal number seven more than i thought i would it's still not good but (laughs) but um it was it was a fine conclusion uh i actually really almost picked uh generations shattered it was a fun silver age style story um with Kamandi at its center i actually really enjoyed it and it almost it pretty much held the top spot for me as i was going through uh my stack last week but the one that caught my heart the one that caught my attention uh of course was future state the next batman number one written by john ridley paul jenkins and brandon thomas with art by nick darrington sumit kumar and jackson and Herbert. Um, this was just a fantastic 
entry point into Gotham City during this future state era. Uh, the first story, the next Batman, was amazing. I love Nick Darrington art. You know I'm a sucker for Nick Darrington art, and having John Ridley at the helm really feels like a breath of fresh air when it comes to the writing. Uh, not that any of the current Bat books uh, are feeling like stale or anything, but this one felt like it had a different energy to it, and I really enjoyed that. I also loved the Outsiders story. Really, really cool seeing where Katana, Black Lightning, and The Signal were at during this uh during all of this, and I love the world building that's being uh, communicated in this book. And then the final story, Arkham Knights, was a cool way to recontextualize Astrid Arkham, who uh, showed up and is, you know, brought the Arkham Knight into DC Comics continuity, and her making essentially her Crusaders to go up against the Magistrate was a cool just a cool story and i really dug this honestly that this was probably my favorite followed very closely by uh wonder woman for the future state books and i cannot wait to dive into all the future state books we're getting this week so let's go ahead and dive into this week's books i'm going to be talking about each book's uh title creative team and synopsis and each synopsis will of course be getting my synopsis voices so just be prepared for that and we're going to kick things off with future state karazor l superwoman number one this is written by marguerite bennett with art by marguerite savage um savage i'm, I'm pretty sure it's savage um I'm sorry, but I was very intrigued by the usage of uh, of Kara Kara uh, from the Superman of Metropolis book last week, and I'm assuming this is taking place at a different point because the costume is very different. This is the cool uh, skirt cape that she's got, um, but I'm looking forward to this. This should be this should be real interesting. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Two Graves, Part 1 Kara Zor-El, Superman's hot-tempered cousin, has finally found peace and purpose away from Earth and its heroes. Now known as Superwoman, she watches over the moon and the refugees from across the galaxy who have congregated there. But all of that is about to change when a spaceship piloted by a runaway alien crash lands and turns Kara's world upside down. Does this fugitive come in peace, or does this arrival bring war to our heroes? front door so that's a really cool concept uh kara essentially being this guardian on this colony i i dig it i really really do like i said the costume is awesome i just i love this version of the costume i hope it either returns or sticks around post future state next up we have marauders number 17 this is written by jerry duggan with art by mateo lolly returning to the book after a little bit of an excursion um this is you know continuing on the uh status quo past future or future state past ten of swords which i still haven't read and i still don't know what's happening but i'm very excited uh, and the uh, cover is teasing a very exciting reunion. So let's go ahead and just dive into the very overblown and expository synopsis here. Rematch. Storm versus Callisto. This time, it's personal. 
So yeah, we're getting a Callisto and Storm rematch. Uh, if you are not familiar with their history, at one point Storm defeated Callisto to essentially take control of the Morlocks. Um, so I, I'm super excited for this. This should be really good. Marauders, like I said, has been uh, that and X and the main X-Men book have been my books that I've been following through uh, in the Hickman X-Men era. So I've been enjoying them. And I think if you're looking for books to kind of follow along during this time, you can't go wrong with those two. Next up, we have American Vampire, 1976, number four. This is written by Scott Snyder with art by Raphael Albuquerque. Um, this has been great. I've really dug bringing Jim Book back into the fold and having him interact with the modern, or I guess the the modern day in 1976 uh, characters and concepts and having um, Cal alongside um, uh, Travis. What is, like I said, just an amazingly inspired choice and all of the developments that happened last issue, no spoilers have been super interesting. So uh, let's just go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Key clues and coordinates in hand, the rogue branches of the VMS reunite for a final mission that could unlock the secret to taking down the beast. On their journey to find answers about a pact between America's founding fathers and an ancient council of monsters, the whole team, Skinner, Pearl, Book, Felicia, Travis, and Cal, realize they'll need to confront their own complicated personal past before they have a hope of correcting world history. Back at the White House, the Grey Trader's secret associate, Bixby, wrestles with his allegiance to evil and makes a final decision about the president's fate. So, yeah, things are just ramping up in this book. They are going to be hitting a world-ending crescendo pretty soon. So, if you've been enjoying the American Vampire series, if you're caught up and you haven't dived into this, do so. Things are about to blow up for sure. Uh, next up, we have Future State Green Lantern number one. This is written by uh, Jeffrey Thorne, Ryan Cady, and Ernie Altbacker, with art by Sammy Basri, Tom Rainey, and Clayton Henry. And this is your pretty much your solitary Green Lantern book for the event. Um, we do have Green Lanterns showing up in other books, one we will get to later that I'm very excited about, but this is going to be kind of your Green Lantern Central for <laughs> for the Future State event, and even though it's only one book, it's got three action-packed stories that I can't wait to talk about, so let's just go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The Last Lanterns, Part 1, Slash, The Book of Guy, Slash, The Tasking, of Sector 123. Assigned to map and contact new life forms past the 3,600 known sectors of space protected by the Green Lantern Corps, John Stewart and an elite team of lanterns are trapped behind enemy lines and fighting for their lives when the central power battery goes dark and leaves the entire Corps defenseless. Meanwhile, across the cosmos, Green Lantern Jessica Cruz finds herself powerless and forced to battle the invading Yellow Lanterns of the Sinestro Corps. And Guy Gardner, trapped on a distant world, decides to reopen Warrior's Bar. So, three very interesting uh, POV characters. I am still very curious on where Hal and Kyle are. Um, having the... 
and I mean Simon as well. I I feel bad for Simon. Um, but having the three POV characters for this Green Lantern book be uh, John Stewart, Jessica Cruz, and Guy Gardner shows not just uh, how interesting these characters are, but also I think is slowly. Uh, inching its way towards the Green Lantern HBO show, which has already stated that those three are going to be kind of at the forefront of that show. So it's all about synergy, you know? I'm I'm interested in this. I am all for more Jessica Cruz stories, so that's my most anticipated for this. But I'm interested to see where the Green Lanterns go from here. Next up, we have Future State Superman Wonder Woman number one. This is written by Dan Waters with art by Layla Del, Del Duca. I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong. Uh, but this is... I'm assuming taking place after the uh, super the solo Superman of Metropolis and Wonder Woman books. Uh, this is interesting, and I'm interested to see how they mesh as characters. Um, let's just go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. The sun has set on the heroes of the past, and a new age is dawning. As two arrogant gods challenge one another to a contest of strength, Superman and Wonder Woman are forced to take action to save their cities from the chaos. Together, Jonathan Kent and Yara Flor, man of science and woman of myth, have the potential to become something powerful, but that's only if they can learn to get along. Can the two fledgling heroes put their differences aside long enough to save the world they have sworn to protect? So it does seem that this is either them kind of meeting for the first time or um, them having known each other for a little while. But I'm interested. I'm very interested to see where this shakes out. Next up, I think one of the, the heavy hitters of this week, which is Future State Dark Detective number one. This is written by Mariko Tamaki with Matthew Rosenberg and art by Dan Mora and Carmine D. Gian Domenico. I'm sorry, but I'm going to go for it. Um, <laughs> this is kind of your detective comics book. This is where we're going to find out what the heck happened to Bruce Wayne in the future state era. And um, I'm really excited about this. This is featuring the... Uh, the future Detective Comics team of Mariko Tamaki and Dan Mora, and I'm really excited. So let's go ahead and just dive into the synopsis here. Dark Detective, Chapter 1, Slash Grifters, Part 1. The world thought Bruce Wayne was dead. They were dead wrong. When the sinister paramilitary organization known as the Magistrate seizes control of Gotham City, the original Batman went big to put them down. But even the Dark Knight couldn't predict how far this evil force would go to stop him. Now, Bruce Wayne is on the run. It's a story of a Batman pushed to the brink with nothing left to lose. Also in this issue, Grifter is back. Cole Cash is having a bad day, and that's not going to improve when the detectives of the GCPD show up. Will a chance meeting with Luke Fox change his luck, or is his day about to get a lot worse? So yeah, um, I know in the first 
uh, issue of the next Batman, they're kind of trying to play fast and loose on whether it's Tim or Luke behind the mask. Um, I don't know where this kind of... um, where this is going to be put in that timeline, since as we talked about in a previous Geeksplained episode, um, they are going to be playing fast and loose with the timelines of this uh, of this Future State event. So I'm excited about this. This is a big one for the Future State, uh, for really just the Future State uh, event. So another book that's actually a big one for Future State is Teen Titans number one. This is written by Tim Sheridan with art by Rafa Sandoval, who will be, uh, carrying over into the Teen Titans Academy book. This is kind of their primer, their prologue or their epilogue, depending on where they decide to go with this timeline. Um, I'm looking forward to this. I'm really, really excited about this book. Uh, let's just go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Ruins. When the original new Teen Titans formed a school to mentor and train young heroes, they wanted to help save the world. Years later, Titans Tower is a monument to a graveyard of pupils lost in a terrible battle. Returning to the site of their greatest failure, Nightwing, Starfire, Beast Boy, and Cyborg join Raven to plot a course to face off against the evil that destroyed their team and school. Loyalties are questioned and motives are suspect, as the former teen heroes must turn to the mysterious Red X, a former student, for help. Don't miss the first comics appearance of this Red X. So yeah, this is the book that's going to bring Red X officially into comics continuity. Um... I'm really excited about this. Not only do I love the creative team behind this, I absolutely adore Rafa Sandoval's art. And Tim Sheridan uh, was the kind of the driving force behind uh, Superman Man of Tomorrow that came out last year. Really good Superman film. I would definitely check it out. Um, So this is a match made in heaven. And I'm really excited to see what they do with the Teen Titans. Next up, we have Future State Justice League, number one. Written by Joshua Williamson and Rom V with art by Mercedes. Sio Takara and Robson Roca. Um, this is your big, you know, tentpole team book for the for Future State, and it's very interesting. I'm looking at this cover again, and the one that they have uh, posted up most recently actually shows. Um, b- this new Batman's face, which I find very interesting, also an updated costume. So again, this is, I think, supposed to be taking place much later on in the timeline, but it also shows a bunch of worlds behind it. So I don't know if this is going to be like a multiversal Justice League. Uh, We do know that at least the Flash from this book is going to be a multiversal Flash. So uh, let's just go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Justice League Part 1 slash Justice League Dark Part 1. Witness the start of a new era for the Justice League starring Jonathan Kent as Superman, Yara Floor as Wonder Woman, Joe Moline as Green Lantern, Andy Curry as Aquaman, a new Flash from the Multiverse, and Tim Fox as Batman. Together, they protect the future, yet apart, their identities are secret even from each other. But why? When their greatest adversaries wind up murdered in an abandoned Hall of Justice, all clues point to the Justice League. The new team's adventures begin here. 
And, in a new tale of the Justice League Dark, a witch hunt across the DC Universe begins as magic users are harvested and executed, and the team is on the run. Zatanna and Detective Chimp, now possessed by Etrigan, must round up new and old teammates, including John Constantine, Ragman, and Madame Xanadu. Their mission? To battle the power-mad Crow King... Merlin before his plans for magical domination destroy the fabric of reality. But where is Dr. Fate, and what led the team to disband in the first place? Discover the truth here. Did I read that right? Detective Chimp possessed by Etrigan? That is so metal. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to both of these books. Uh, first off, Joe Mullane, Green Lantern, the main Green Lantern as she should be. Um, I'm really excited. This team that they have together, they have, uh, Andy Curry showing up from the Aquaman book. Um, and pretty much everyone else besides, I guess, Joe and this new multiversal flash have shown up in other books prior to this. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do with these characters, how they're going to mesh and what exactly the future holds for the Justice League. And then finally, my big book of the week, the book that I'm sure if you've been keeping up to date and if you listen to our Future State guidebook way back in uh, in 2020 with uh, special guest Malcolm Joshua Russell Nelson, uh, you knew that this was going to be my number one book of the week, and it is Future State Robin Eternal number one. That's right. I don't care if... All of the other books are better. I don't care if, you know, the characters in other books are bigger. This is my most anticipated book. This is written by Fagan Fit... Fagan. Megan Fitzmartin with art by Eddie Barrows. Eddie Barrows reuniting with Tim Drake from the Rebirth Detective Comics run. One of the strongest uh, Rebirth books out of the entire event. One day, one day I might just do a full-on ranking or a retrospective on the rebirth era if you'd like to see that let me know i'd love to do that at some point but uh this is finding out where tim drake is during the events of future state and what is going on i'm really excited about this so let's just go ahead and dive into the synopsis here robin eternal part one Lazarus Resin is on its way to Gotham City, and the magistrate intends to use this regenerative superdrug to make himself immortal. That is, unless Tim Drake has anything to say about it. Join the ultimate heist at 20,000 feet as Robin and Spoiler hijack the Sky Convoy that could mean the end of freedom in Gotham forever. If the emotional baggage between Tim and Stephanie doesn't do them in first, it's the fist-flying, skydiving, robot-smashing, fascist-punching adventure that you cannot miss. So, I'm really excited about this. Uh, you know the love that I have for Tim Drake. He's the best Robin. Um, and reuniting Eddie Barrows with that character, I'm all four. Uh, Megan Fitzmartin is also making her jump over to DC from previously writing on Supernatural, and I'm I'm excited about this. I love heists. I love Tim Drake. This is a match made in heaven. This No other book could be number one this week. You know this, just of, because of who I am as a person. So uh, that does it for the uh, 
comics countdown for this week let's go ahead and recap with future state Kara zor el superwoman number one marauders number 17 american vampire 1976 number four future state green lantern number one future state superman wonder woman number one future state dark detective number one future state teen titans number one future state justice league number one and future state robin eternal number one and that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us here on the Geek Explained podcast and you like what I do here, please feel free to subscribe on the podcasting platform of your choice. We drop episodes every single Wednesday on a different geeky topic. And having you guys subscribe, having you guys engage with the podcast really helps me out, really helps the podcast out, kind of raises our stock in the podcasting sphere and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. If you want to follow us as well, you want to keep up to date with the podcast, updates, different polls, uh, announcements for episodes, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. That's at P-O-D. Also, I would love it if you could give us a rating and review. It really helps me out. This is, of course, a podcast for geeks by a geek. I love getting feedback from you guys uh, throughout the this entire time we're coming up on our three-year anniversary uh in just a couple months and it's crazy to me how much we've grown as a podcast so uh feel free to give us reviews ratings recommend us tell a friend retweet us uh just helps us out word of mouth does so much and if you give us a five-star rating and review on uh apple Podcasts, itunes whatever they want to call it i will read your review here live on the podcast you can join the esteemed likes of our four horsemen that being seafire nd josh from panels to pixels matt draper and burrito man 88 want to say a big thank you to those four for their ratings and reviews and i can't wait to hear yours but that is going to do it for this week's episode i am so freaking excited to be able to finally talk about vision um as you know, I am a huge Tom King mark. He doesn't always knock it out of the park, but I really enjoy his stories. And this uh, this story really is what kind of put him on the map for me. And this is something that I think is going to stand the test of time. It's one of the best Marvel stories I've ever read. And in, if you are excited about WandaVision, this is a comic you are going to want to read if you come to me and say hey i really enjoyed wandavision what should i watch i'm going to tell you come listen to this episode (laughs) so um i would love to know what you think about the vision what you feel about uh the character about wandavision if you would like to um send in you know your thoughts to me and you want me to read them on here as part of our geek explained mailbag please feel free uh you can also send me uh questions you have if you want you know uh, questions about a certain character or a certain event answered, I would be happy to do that. Uh, I've also done a quick pitch here and there, so feel free to send uh, emails to geeksplained at gmail.com to be part of our Geeksplained mailbag and just put mailbag in the header and I will read it here. But um, I'm I'm just, I'm super excited. 2020 was a hell of a year and 2021 is shaping up to, fingers crossed, be a little bit 
better. So uh, tune in next week for a very exciting episode. I'm going to be talking about my favorite Superman origin story, and I have a super guest. So tune in next week for that. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geek Explain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe, and we will see you next time. Ça serait trop. Mais il faut faire la part de ceux qui, sans conclure, interrogent toujours si j'ai pris ça à peine. Il s'agit de la majorité. Je vois également que ceux qui répondent non agissent comme s'ils pensaient oui. De fait, throw yourself into the unknown with pace and a fury defiant. Clothe yourself in beauty untold and see life as a means to a triumph. Today